Trevor Alpin, the team on the brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. It's his weekly Monday appearance, except it is, in fact, occurring on a Tuesday. Is managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And what follows in this episode, as he does in each episode, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball. Of particular note this week, the Sabre Seminar. The Sabre Seminar occurred this past week in Cambridge, Massachusetts, or Boston, Massachusetts. The two are uh, nearly indistinguishable, especially from space, one assumes. Uh, wh- wh- however it happened, it was, a, uh, it was a veritable font of new research for baseball. It was not... It was not actually one. It was not literally one. It was a metaphorical font of new research. Uh, and Dave Cameron, uh, in what follows, Dave Cameron summarizes uh, some of the uh, the best of what he saw there, uh, both in terms of what you might call a highly developed research and also a, a more speculative, experimental sort. One conversation that seemed to recur for Cameron during his weekend in the Boston area concerns StatCast. StatCast, of course, holds great potential in terms of uh, our ability to judge both batted balls and also fielding ability. There is, in theory, a lot of data there. In practice, however, as is not uncommon, uh, there appears to be, at least at the moment, uh, there appears to be some limitations to the data. This is a beta test year, and uh, every person I talked to this weekend who has had access to the full StatCast uh, data set has agreed that, you know, it's got some work to do. Furthermore, if you're a person who's on the Internet, uh, you're probably aware that Kurt Schilling made some ill-advised comments uh, by means of social media platform Twitter.com on Tuesday. Curiously, uh, the, the Saturday before that, during the Sabre Seminar, uh, he actually made some comments that endeared him uh, to the crowds there at the Sabre Seminar. Dave Cameron examines all of that in what follows. Uh, before we find our way to that conversation, I would be uh, remiss and also in breach of contract, not to mention this week's sponsor, this week's sponsor, as it has been the last couple episodes, is Draft, the Draft app. If you're familiar with FanDuel, if you're familiar with DraftKings, you're familiar with the daily fantasy format. Draft is not unlike one of those sites, plus words with friends divided by two, if that makes sense. It is the first truly mobile fantasy sports app. One challenges a friend, one engages with that friend in a very brief snake draft forming teams of five players each and then one observes with bated breath as uh, the players he or she has drafted accrue fantasy points allowing that same one either to win and vanquish 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 one's friend or otherwise to not vanquish to be vanquished uh, by that same friend in previous weeks i've noted that uh, that the draft app is available uh, in the app store for the ios the ios operating system now Please do not let me lie to you. It is available for Android as well. So if you own a Samsung Galaxy, some manner of Samsung Galaxy like I own, uh, the Draft app is available for that product. What is it? It's the Draft app. It's available the App Store, Google Play, Google Play, and you can uh, you can do it. Just do it now. Just do it right now and participate in that. Okay, that is the sponsor for this edition. I've already talked about Dave Cameron, so it is time to get to that conversation. It is it is an edition of Fangraph Studio featuring managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. question for you okay you are a relatively new father true yes as far as i know yeah (laughs) 
Usually, yeah. Uh, right. The <clears throat> I have, I have a friend um, who's not a baseball writer. He's a lawyer of some sort, and he has uh, two young children. And uh, when we attended college together, until the college thought maybe I shouldn't be at that school, and then um, but we still kept in touch. But when we were students together, we uh, we talked about baseball quite a bit. And we watch quite, baseball quite a bit, but now he now he has kind of now he has a professional job and also two kids, and so he hardly watches baseball at all. Yeah, um, and so he's actually going to the Yankees Astros game on Wednesday, and uh, he's like I don't he's like I don't understand I don't know what's going on at all in baseball. Um, this is probably not surprising to you if it were not your profession you might be in a similar similar situation. Yeah, I mean, I probably won't watch more baseball than he does, but we have different jobs. Right. So. Uh, he suggested that uh, I write or someone write, or he would like to at least see somewhere just an ongoing summary of whatever the current season is, so that someone who has no I- someone who has no idea what's been happening would uh, would be able to just reference it briefly and understand. Yeah, just send him like a the chaos ladder theory or you know like just be like hey things that are happening this year are exactly the opposite of what you'd expect the astros are good good teams are bad who knows anything who knows yeah who knows it just really just makes you question actually uh on the subject of, of knowing anything i have uh, some other friends who have a three-year-old and uh their child has uh has asked them why so often that now they just now they just suffer from crippling self-doubt because they don't, they frequently do not know the answer. Yeah, I was actually reading, uh, I don't know, last week or the week before, because my son is not yet speaking, so yeah. I'm not yet caught in the why loop. But there's actual like uh, academic papers on how to get out of the never-ending why questions of your kids and like mm-hmm. uh, proven effective ways to like end the why. <laughs> and and uh, so I'm looking forward to like putting the research, the the kind of the safer metrics of uh, of child rearing to. Yeah. To good use, it was to, to crush their to curiosity, to right? To be like, stop <laughs> trying to learn things. Just accept <laughs> the world for how it is. Yeah, that's what I do. That's what I do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's good. Well, here's a question though: if you were to, if you were to uh, attempt to summarize the season for someone who had, you know, like a grounding in in the sport, but uh, had not been able to pay attention, say either for this year or the last three years or whatever, what would be what would be your strategy besides the you know, whatever you thought was going to happen is the opposite. Well, how would you? What would be your techniques for summarizing the season? Um, probably I don't know. Go division by division. Just say like, yeah, the AL West, uh, the Astros, the young players have surprisingly improved faster than people expected. Uh, the AL Central, everyone except for the Royals is terrible. Uh, the AL East, everyone is terrible except for the Blue Jays, uh, and they made big trades at the deadline. Uh, the NL East, everyone is terrible except for the Mets because the world is weird. Uh, in the NL Central, everyone is awesome. Uh, and then in the NL West, uh, the Dodgers should be good but aren't. Right. There you go. There's, there's Wait, NL Central, well, except for the Brewers, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I mean, the top three teams are awesome. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, and then would you say, would you say something like, uh, more, there are more talented rookies generally this year than there are in other yeah, seasons? Yeah, the, the game continues to skew young. Skew young, yeah. And we actually saw, we might see evidence of that in the, or at least it's um, uh, it, it was something that I think Craig Edwards felt compelled to discuss yesterday in a post uh, he wrote looking at the relationship between wins and salary. 
Right. I think we've seen that over the last couple of years. It's like teams that have spent a lot of money have not reaped the benefits of that, of that, uh, spending. And like, uh, the correlation over the last couple of years between wins and payroll has been, been pretty low. And, and, you know, when you have, uh, a large percentage of very good young players, uh, performing very well and making basically the league minimum or something close to it, uh, the effects of salary are diminished. What about the way, what about the ways in which, uh, you know, if, if you're the sort of person who was excited, for example, by Moneyball and then the concept of wins above replacement, you, d- different ways, sort of, um, uh, I suppose, um, concepts that have been introduced to baseball analysis that have allowed us to think about the game um, in new and interesting ways. Uh, what, what, do you think there's any sort of research that, is, that has been uh, produced this year uh, or in the last year or two? That has allowed us to understand the game in a in a way that uh, we needed to or would have wanted to, but has only been revealed recently. Uh, I mean, that's tough, right? Like, I mean, there's so there's always good research being published. Uh, you know, I certainly don't want to say like, oh yeah, nothing published in the last couple of years has been transformative. Uh, you know, stop reading. We don't really know anything. We're not learning anything. Uh, but it does feel like. Maybe the pace of learning has slowed, uh, or, or at least maybe we've hit a little bit of a lull wall. Um, you know, there's one of the things that we discussed at Saber Seminar, I discussed with some friends at Saber Seminar this weekend, is it's, we're in a little bit of an awkward space analytically where we've had the promise of StatCast, uh, and these kind of new data streams for the last couple of years, and this year was supposed to be kind of the fire hose gets turned on, and everyone was kind of looking forward to, um, you know, having a whole new kind of uh, series of metrics to analyze and to evaluate. And it hasn't really happened. Like StatCast has been, uh, yeah, I would consider it somewhat of a disappointment at this point. Uh, you know, the data data quality isn't really there yet. Major League Baseball isn't really releasing a lot of stuff because there are some problems with the data, and I don't think they want to highlight that to the public. Um, so we're, we've all kind of like, you know, maybe slowed down our research and development on um, non- ball tracking metrics because we know that there's this potential for StatCast and other kinds of, you know, tools like that to uh, make all, you know, like things like uh, fielding independent pitching irrelevant, right? Like, you know, why keep developing these metrics based on uh, line drive rate when we might not lead line drive rate in a couple of years, but the the new data isn't quite ready for prime time yet. So, what, are the, uh, uh, what are the problems that are occurring right now? So one of the main things that StatCast is uh, struggling with is uh, capturing uh, the the uh, or I guess measuring balls that aren't well struck, right? So like uh, if you're watching on game day or on the MLB bat app, you see a home run almost every single time. They will give you batted ball distance, speed off the bat, launch angle, no problem. If the ball's hit 450 feet at 110 miles an hour, the system does really well. If you hit a 60 foot Pop up, <laughs> launch angle of like 85 degrees and it goes, uh, you know, 30 miles an hour off the bat. The system's not as good at that. So, um, there are a lot of, uh, missing plays in the data set and most of them are weak contact plays or the, where the ball doesn't travel very far or where the ball has a hard, or the system has a hard time finding the ball when it only goes 20 feet in front of the plate. Um, so, is so, it, so have, have none of Billy Burns's batted balls been recorded this year? <laughs> well, I would probably not none, but you know, for guys, uh, you certainly have an, an, a biased data set where if you're co- constantly, if you're John Carlos Stanton and every batted ball of yours is crushed to the outfield, you're going to have a much higher, uh, you know, 
subset of your balls being tracked than if you are a guy who's, uh, you know, hitting a ton of infield flies. And, and this is one of the things, like, you know, one of the main stats we've seen come out of StatCast that people are quoting this year is uh, average batted ball velocity. But if you're a guy who hits a ton of infield flies, which are really bad and have low batted ball velocity uh, and are almost automatic outs, and they're not getting tracked, your your average batted ball velocity is going to be heavily overstated uh, because the ones that you don't hit very well are being thrown out. You know, Jeff, Jeff Sullivan uh, published in a one piece a fantastic chart, a bar-type chart uh, that depicted the average batted ball velocity by the area in which uh, the area over the plate in in which the ball had been struck, um, and so that that was the first I had seen where I was able to see some averages. I feel like because that's one of the other difficulties for me as a consumer and the quasi analyst uh, when I see certain numbers portrayed, even when it is a ball that apparently has been recorded accurately or recorded at all and accurately. Uh, you know, you see that. Um, for example, we see that a, a guy has the Billy Burns has run to use. A, this is just an example. I saw him the other day. He ran 16 miles per hour and he had a root efficiency of 99.1%. Right. But I guess, I guess, of course, you you know when you see something as an index stat, that's always much more helpful. I don't even know what the averages are. Like what? Like right. what's like what is a fast human? At what speed does a fast human run typically? Like I think the top speeds we've seen recorded are around 20 miles an hour. Oh, okay. And so we've actually seen this recorded by baseball players. By Statcast, yeah. Okay. Who runs at 20 miles per hour? I don't remember offhand, but I think I've seen some outfielders, uh, maybe Billy Hamilton, uh, okay. get, you know, 19.8 or 20.1 or something along those lines on okay. balls that they really, you know, where they really have to get up, go into full speed to run a ball down in the gap. Right. So, th- that, I mean, that's, that's the sort of thing that perhaps with, like, as you're saying, with a more complete data set. And the other thing is, you know, I see root efficiency of 99. I think right. that's very good. It's a very high number. Yeah. But I expect most of them to be above 50. Yeah. Right? Because I, mean, I, I think degrees. you probably expect most of them above 80. I mean, like, you know, like, uh, my guess would be a guy who's running a, a pretty inefficient route where, you know, he's more than 20% off kind of the, the straight line, uh, you know, ideal path to the ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's gonna get, you know, scorn. Like, we, we spent all weekend in Boston making fun of Hanley Ramirez. I don't know what Hanley Ramirez's average root efficiency is, but I bet you it's not any lower than 80%. Like, he's still at least generally running in the right direction. You go to the direction of the, the ball, yeah, yeah. Right. Like, he's not running the wrong way. He just <laughs> isn't making the plays. Right. Uh, well, what would be, I guess what, if you run the exact opposite direction, is that 0%? Or do you somehow get negative 100%? Because yeah. you've, that's a good question. Maybe we'd have to ask Mike Petriello, who MLB.com stole from us, uh, in order to write about StatCast data. I, I, yeah, it'd be interesting to see, like, what the 0% root efficiency, <laughs> like, maybe someone bunts and you try to climb the wall. <laughs> I feel like that's, I feel like there's, there's at least one, uh, early Nintendo game where that's a, that's a feature in it. There's like a bug. Yeah, where you slide and somehow your player is able to slide all the way across the infield as a, as a defender. But that sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that would be. I would like to see that. I would like to see a negative. If there's such thing as a negative, well, negative 100%. Right? Is so say you say all right. So say Hanley Ramirez is in his position, right? And then a ball is hit. He's playing left field. The ball is hit, and you know directly to his left, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If he ran 
directly to his right and ran all the way around the world and caught the ball what you know really was just like maybe 20 paces to his left what is that root of it is that a is that is that negative 100% or is that zero well he caught the ball he did catch the ball I mean, I think you can't have it can't be a zero percent root efficiency if you catch the ball, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, I think like somewhere on the scale there has to be like, uh, you know, uh, below this you never make the play. Well, doesn't it have uh, root efficiency? Oh no, I guess it doesn't really require that you catch the ball, but there needs to be an end point. There needs yeah. to be an end point. Like, do you ever see root efficiency? Uh, do you ever see it recorded if a player has not made a catch? Because you need, there needs to be one point where where those two lines intersect. Well, this is one of the problems with the data, right? Is we don't know these answers we because don't know the, yeah. because MLB is selectively giving us the data, right. and so we see root efficiency when a play is really spectacularly made, but they're never using it to like make fun of players. And I think this is one of the things that they're maybe trying to figure out is like, do we want to give the world, you know, a root efficiency on Hanley Ramirez running the wrong way and looking like a drunk guy? Like maybe we don't want to publish that, or at least we're not sure we want to publish that. So. Uh, we have this very highly biased selection of, you know, we see a lot of 98s, 99s, root efficiencies on MLB's Twitter account, but we only see them because those are the ones they're telling us about. Right, and I will say, I will interject to say uh, that I tend to be a little bit more uh, generous to people's uh, weaknesses. Right. Um, I don't know if it's because I have so many of them, but I, I think you could talk about Hanley Ramirez's failing without his, his his problems as a defender without making fun of him. I think you can say we are all we are all probably many of us we're miserable major league fielders. He actually just happens to have this other skill set, which is the ability to hit, at least hit for power currently. Uh, that because without that, it's like every player right who, at the end of the season who ends up with negative two wins. That player was usually good at one point; otherwise, they would not have been given the requisite number of plate appearances to right. to accrue two wins. So. Oops. This is actually something Kurt Schilling touched on on Saturday during his talk at Saber Seminar. This was not not something Kurt Schilling tweeted this morning, but oh, something, something he actually said in person at the Saber Seminar that was not offensive to a large uh, population of people. Is it, uh, is it weird? I don't know what sort of interaction you had with Kurt Schilling on Saturday. Uh, I didn't. I didn't personally say hi to him. Is it weird? So of course he tweeted something earlier today involved that made more than a direct comparison between Muslim people and Nazis. <laughs> it's not. It's just. There's no reason you should tweet it, especially if you're like you know, I don't know, like a public figure doing something else. There's just a lot of reasons that it that it didn't make sense, and he quickly deleted it. But you saw that same person, like. I don't know what the like outcome. Seventy-two hours ago, he was like making a positive impression on a room full of people who didn't generally have negative opinions of him. Like I think a lot of people were kind of skeptical of what Schilling was going to say, and I think he he won a lot of people over on Saturday, and then he lost them all again this morning. <laughs> yeah, I just it's, what's it, like what's it like to say? I don't know what the outcomes could be. I guess it would not be shocking to find that he's suspended, right, by ESPN. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, right, yeah probably. <laughs> it wouldn't it wouldn't be surprising. The point is that you saw someone like. Just you saw someone, yeah, within within three days of just like a totally a total miscalculation, and you saw him in just being a guy that people. Well, he was making the same point that you just made. Like he actually said, like one of the problems. He let's sees... be clear. Yeah, let's be clear about the point that I just made as well. Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, the point that you were making is about like you know bad players are still good players. Like he said, you know, in doing baseball tonight, he sees like Jonah Carey and Keith Law and Derek Carty and kind of the statsy guys the ESPN has on. 
and they'll say something like, you know, this guy is terrible, and he gets, like, offended for that player, and he's like, whatever, that player's still better than you, and, like, you know, relatively compared to other major league players, the player might be terrible, but from his perspective, and he thinks the perspective of other players, a non-player calling a player terrible is seen as offensive, essentially, where you're you're not uh, acknowledging the skills that got him to the major leagues and Haley Ramirez made him a multi-time all-star and, like, one of the better players in baseball and got him a $90 million contract. Like, you know, Haley Ramirez is not terrible. He's just performed really poorly this year. That's not something that stat heads are necessarily good at uh you know re- teasing out that difference right and i would say that in this in this isolated incident in this one case i agree uh, i agree with kurt Schilling. oh man we should really just make that uh <laughs> this very to, specific narrow sentence and that's the whole paragraph <laughs> audio <laughs> analyzing carson sestuli's agreements uh with kurt Schilling. yeah i will uh i will i i could cut that out and see uh See what, see what it sounds just, like. Just put that on Twitter and be like, I agree with Kurt Schilling. I agree with Kurt Schilling, yeah. Um, okay, so that's – I'm actually happy to have talked about this with StatCast because I guess I always felt like it's it's one of those things sometimes you're in a room and people, they all seem to know what they're talking about and you just sort of nod. You're like, yes, yes, that is true about what you're saying and you don't know the answer. But I guess, uh, I, and I guess for some reason I expected – Someone out there knew more about what was happening with regard to StackCast than I did. But it appears as though it's a bit mysterious at this point, and that's because uh, they are attempting to sort out uh, some troubles with the, with the data collection. Yeah, but I think th- this is a beta test year. And, uh, you know, Major League Baseball probably made a little bit of a mistake when they came out, you know, a year ago in March and, and said, this thing is going to revolutionize baseball really soon, and it wasn't. It hadn't really been tested at that point. It was still an idea, and like the execution of the idea is proving to be a little bit challenging. I think they're going to get it, and I think the Statcast remains a fantastic potential tool. But this is a beta test year, and uh, every person I talked to this weekend who has had access to the full Statcast uh, data set has agreed that you know it's got some work to do. All right. Well, let's talk about this weekend. You you attended Saber Seminar in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Cambridge, Massachusetts. Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, yeah, it's in Boston at Boston University. Right. All proceeds going to the Jimmy Fund, having no relation uh, to Jimmy V, who has his own fund, or there's at least a fund in his name. This is a different thing, but also for the benefit of cancer and cancer research. Yeah, I actually got the email this morning from the guys who ran it. Uh, we raised thirty thousand dollars. That's uh, awesome for the Jimmy Fund this weekend. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. What did you see in terms of, uh, I'd say, memorable research? Either uh, maybe uh, presentations that were sort of fully formed, or uh, maybe a little bit more speculative but promising. Yeah, so I think the one that probably stands out is like maybe the most potentially interesting uh, going forward in terms of long-term impact on. On baseball would be uh, some guys uh, who own a company called DeServo, um, and they're doing neuroscience. So uh, this has been written about a little bit, uh, especially with regard to Mookie Betts. Uh, you know, the, the I think during the preseason, a couple of Boston papers wrote up this kind of technology and, and noted that the Red Sox are trying to do some of this neuro scouting, where basically you're trying to figure out whether a player has quicker brain reaction. Uh, and so these guys, they presented a couple of years ago with like their first test where they basically created this little baseball video game that you play on a computer that, uh, tests your pitch recognition. And, you know, by pitch recognition, it tells you like P for, uh, or like F for fastball or C for curveball. And you have to like hit the right button, uh, associated with that when the screen shows it to you. 
Uh, but they kind of came back and presented some more research and really showed like now they're lining up uh, the technology with fMRI and really kind of delving into the hows and whys of how your brain works and um, it was a pretty fascinating presentation kind of uh, giving some thought to maybe eventually um, we'll be able to understand uh, and evaluate and maybe even project out a player's future performance based on his uh, the signals and the, and the speed in which his brain reacts to stimulus and, and how quickly they can make decisions. And, you know, this is one of the things that I think has been a little bit contested in baseball is like whether play discipline is something that can be taught or not. And, you know, we've used it like looking at results data, but if you could actually find the diodes in your brain that uh, are associated with being able to tell a ball from a strike and you could run that test on every guy before you draft him or sign him and you could be like, oh, yeah, this guy's never going to learn how to tell a slider from a from a changeup because his brain just doesn't fire in that way, uh, that could actually be a pretty important breakthrough in baseball. Well, and yeah, and it's also, maybe it could add to this discussion, but uh, I don't think that there's, we, we use a, a sort of blanket term like plate discipline, right? Yeah. But plate discipline also, even in the results, it seems to manifest itself differently, right? Because um, some players have high walk rates, maybe because they're swinging through strikes, and so they're just collecting more pitches generally, uh, in other cases, players might use that plate discipline to to swing on the first pitch because you know that that's you know m- more counts than not. That's when you're going to get a fastball. Yeah, but I think we've incorrectly uh, associated the term plate discipline with drawing walks. Uh, and you know, drawing walks can be a factor of plate discipline, but at the same time, it depends on the, your pitch distribution. If you're a five eight, 150 pounds. Uh, and you just stand there trying to draw walks, that's not play discipline, that's silliness. Uh, because you're gonna get a lot of fastballs down the middle and, and the correct response to that kind of pitch is to swing. The, the return on investment on a swing is higher than a take if you're getting pitches down the middle. So, I think what we really wanna measure, and haven't necessarily figured out correctly, I mean, O swing and Z swing, I think, get in that direction, but even then, there's a big difference between a, a you know, a Z swing in the middle of the pitch, or in the middle of the plate on a 3-1 fastball, versus an, you know, O2, uh, change up on the edge, right? Like these are not the same kinds of uh, return on investment on whether you should swing or not. So um, I think uh, getting towards, you know, more accurate pitch-by-pitch measurement of like the swing decision is something that could be fascinating for baseball's future. And how was that? And how how was it presented? Uh, were there sort of any conclusions about specific players? Uh, in the, no, in, I mean this is much much more of a proof of concept uh, trial. Where you know I think they're working with major league teams and they're working with a couple of hockey teams. They said um, I think they're essentially kind of just getting um, attention for the product. This isn't necessarily something that like uh, is ever even going to lead to publicly available metrics necessarily. This is probably the kind of thing that would fall under a HIPAA. Uh, protection where if teams study this, they're not going to be telling us that, you know, Javier Baez just happens to not have the brain capacity to stop striking out. Like, um, this would be something that would probably impact team decision much more than the public's perception. Wait, so does that mean that, that if, um, if, if a team wanted access to players' data, does that mean that each, all 30 teams would have to, like they, like they would, there would be no essentially, uh, sharing of information, of this sort of information? Yeah, usually how these things work, I mean, I can't speak for DeServo and this program specifically, but in talking with other people who are, you know, trying to sell products to teams, generally what what works best is 
um, or what team, the business model that these businesses have generally followed is that they target, you know, a small subsection of all 30 teams. Because if you sell all of your, if you sell your product to all 30 teams, there's no reason for any of them to really continue to buy it, uh, because you've taken away the competitive advantage. At that point, you've turned it into a commodity. So what people try and do is they try to, uh, you know, say maybe we'll sell it to one team in every division or one team in every league or something like that. So you basically make teams compete for a scarce resource and say you can get a big competitive advantage because we won't sell this to any other team that you're directly playing against. Ah, okay. And would it would it ever be? What if they were just like we'll sell you some of the data, but we're not going to we we have we provide no hints about how to about how to um, you know the the implications of that data. Well, I mean, so these guys aren't going to have any data to sell, right? Because, like, the way it works is the player has to come in and strap this thing on his head and, like, take the test with, like, while wearing this brain cap and, like, they have to record the... So, like, you know, you can't go to the Indians and say, hey, we have uh, brain data on Francisco Lindor until the Indians give you Francisco Lindor and let you put a thing on his head and start measuring him. So That's a good point. You, you don't get any data until the team is already uh, involved. I suppose I was thinking uh, less of the, at the major league level and more of the amateur prospect. Uh, right. So, I mean, maybe, like, if you were an amateur prospect and you thought this was something that you were, uh, you know, maybe uh, above average at or that you think was an advantage for you, um, perhaps you could go get this done on your own and then uh, provide that to scouting directors and be like, hey, look, I know I'm not the biggest guy in the world, but here's why I make crazy amounts of contact and I don't ever strike out and um, here's some evidence supporting it. I think the tricky thing is that the people who would put the most – emphasis on this kind of information are probably not scouts and scouting directors but the analytical departments in those organizations and those aren't the ones who are going to be directly interacting with the amateur talent right okay so great it's all useless it's not useless oh no it's not useless That's but right. maybe maybe would be the kind of thing that would push forward the separation between team information and public information if this proved to be useful is there uh what where is team information at at this point is it uh, really as compared to the amount that's available publicly? Is there is there a greater gap than there has been in the past? I actually don't think so. I think uh, I know people like to speculate that the teams have way more information than we do, and uh, there's certainly some like uh, health. Absolutely, they do. Like we we know nothing about health, and teams know a little bit more than nothing. Um, and you know, player makeup and work ethic and like things related to just being around these people as people. Uh, we are way behind. When it comes to actual just performance data, the gap is not that big. Uh, teams have better information and better data streams than we do, but the, it is not this huge gulf where they know that, you know, uh, they know that, you know, Mark Trumbo is actually amazing and we haven't figured that out yet. Like, you know, in general, uh, I think our, Major league player valuations are probably pretty close. Uh, not, not the same as the major league teams, but they're in the ballpark for most guys. Uh, when it comes to prospects and projecting the future, I think teams are ahead of us on that for sure. Uh, but you know, if we're talking about how good Jake Arietta is as a major league pitcher, not going to be all that different. Oh yeah, that's right. But you think that, you think there is a larger gap, uh, when looking at, uh, amateur prospects? Yeah, absolutely. Once you can include like internal scouting reports and you can, you know, get expert analysis from people who have actually seen the player and have, uh, you know, I mean, they just have more information than we do and better information than we do. So when it comes to prospects and, and projecting prospects, uh, I think there's a pretty sizable gap. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's good. To, that's good. To know. Uh, let's see. Oh yeah. Uh, 
there are a couple other questions I had for you. Uh, we, you're, you're, you're pretty close here to fulfilling your obligation. The, uh, uh, ben Sharing. Uh, so the last the last two editions of this podcast um, have featured uh, brief conversations about um, about GMs who have. Wait, 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 each of them contain their own euphemism because because uh, Dave Dombrowski was released from his released from his contract. Yeah. Released from his contract with Detroit. Uh, Doug Melvin was reassigned. Uh, yeah, it was transferred to a advisory role. Right. And what was, uh, what is the Ben Sherrington situation? Ben Sherrington, uh, refused the ability to remain in his job after he, he, he was given a new boss. <laughs> okay. All right. Which I guess is his right. Yeah. Uh, he, and you said he decided he, to not work for Dave Dombrowski. Basically. Right. And you said he actually even, um, he actually still appeared at the Saber seminar despite the fact that he, uh, yeah, Ben, ben Sherrington basically came and had an exit interview essentially four days after he got fired, which was pretty classy. Yeah, right. It, I assume not particularly fun, uh, it, or wouldn't necessarily have to be. What is the first of all? Okay, Ben Sherrington was fired, I, or not fired. He he left, but the reason that that's interesting is because the Red Sox brought on Dave Dombrowski. Uh, I, I suppose we can only know to some degree what the implications are, but one of them is that you know, I mean, Dombrowski has. Uh, He's been around for some time. Yeah. He's had success as a general manager, but it's not necessarily uh, steeped in analytics. Yeah. I mean, so like during the media panel, uh, which was three beat writers and myself, uh, Alex Spear and Jen McCaffrey from, uh, from the Boston area and then Andy McCullough from Kansas City, uh, obviously the Royals were in town. So, um, mm-hmm. they, they were on stage with me, uh, or I was on stage with them more accurately. Uh, and this question came up and I think Alex Spear gave a really good answer, um, in terms of, uh, Dombrowski has historically adapted to his scenarios, right? So in Montreal, and my, uh, he was a player development machine. Uh, this was like the thing he was known for was turning out internal players from his farm system and turning them into really good homegrown players. And then he went to Florida and he worked for, uh, win now owners and he adjusted and that's kind of what he did there. And then he went to Detroit and he worked for a, uh, elderly gentleman who wanted to win a World Series before he died and was essentially ordered, hey, stop trying to develop prospects, just trade them for Major League help and, and get us a title now, and that's what he did there. And so um, uh, it seems like Dombrowski's greatest strength is that he can uh, perhaps adapt to the situation he's given. And if the Red Sox tell him, hey, you know, use analytics, it's unlikely that he's going to tell them to go pound sand. I mean, this mm-hmm. is, you know, John Henry is still um, the guy who hired Bill James and has worked uh, to really build the Red Sox into an analytical organization. It's unlikely they're just going to throw all of that away. But at the same time, Dombrowski is not, uh, you know, uh, an analytical guy first and foremost, and he's probably going to use uh, the data streams and the kind of information less than Ben Sherrington did. I mean, I don't think there's any question this is a, a bit of a philosophical shift for the Red Sox. Um, but I don't think at the same time we should say Dave Dombrowski is, uh, you know, un- unable to use a computer and will probably uh, just, you know, uh, evaluate with his eyes. Right. Although it seems as though even some of the moves that uh, Sherrington made, I, I think I think I saw some discussion, uh, some comments by Ben Sherrington as to the you know the logic behind the Pablo Sandoval signing. Right. And I think that uh, he was under no misapprehension that Sandoval Sandoval or Fenway Park was not necessarily the the best park for Sandoval. Uh, and there were well, maybe other. 
What's so that? The, the idea is that Sandoval was actually, uh, most of his power was to left center, and he actually is a strong opposite field hitter as a lefty. So there was some idea, I think Tony Bongino even wrote when, when they signed, when the Red Sox signed Sandoval, that this could be a very good park for him. Uh, and Sherrington was asked about that on Saturday and said, nah, it wasn't that complicated. We needed a third baseman, and he was the best third baseman on the market. Don't overthink this. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so the point is that, right, there wasn't necessarily, uh, uh, yeah, they, they just needed the best player, or what they thought was going to be the best player. But it, right. uh, I suppose it didn't work out, nor with Hanley Ramirez, did it? No, right. I, mean, I think that's one of the things that's interesting in, in um, maybe the public perception is sometimes perhaps we can ascribe too much analytical process to teams that have this reputation as being data-driven uh, when sometimes, you know, like uh, I think we've seen this before where, you know, uh, Eno Saris when the A's signed Billy Butler – uh, wrote this whole thing about line drive rates and ground ball rates and types of pitch, types of hitters. And then you hear like Billy Bean be like, nah, we just wanted a guy who could hit. We thought Billy Bean could hit. And, uh, you know, previously other people have written about the A's trying to build lineups around teams, uh, around guys who can hit, uh, sinker ballers because guys are pitching lower in the zone. And they've been like, no, nah, that's just coincidence. That wasn't our plan. Um, so I think sometimes we can look for post hoc reasoning and be like, oh yeah, this must be the statsy reason why they decided to do that when a lot of times they're just Getting players they think are good. Yeah. Billy Butler, unfortunately. He's for, been terrible. For Oakland is not. Hey, you're saying terrible. I guess he's. he's Kurt Schilling, Billy Butler's been terrible. <laughs> not as terrible as your tweets. No, yeah, but he has not had a great. Not had a great season. Yeah. 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 I, I understand Schilling's point, but at the same time, you know, I don't necessarily want to uh, amend every comment I give of like. Relative to all human beings, this guy's still pretty good. But relative to the 750 people in baseball, he's been bad. Like that just seems like a waste of words. Well, he needs to. DH is tough, right? And uh, you gotta you have to hit quite a bit. But he's hitting like 15% below league average this year. He got worse from his career worst year last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of yeah. by the same amount that he had been that that amount that that season was worse than his previous worst season, which is not yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. Doubling down on on. Uh, I'm getting worse. Nice yeah. I'm decline. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's not usually strange. Uh, let's see. Uh, if I, uh, yeah, uh, it actually appears as though you've fulfilled your obligation here, Dave Cameron. Cool. Uh, unless unless we missed anything big, we never talked about Chase Utley getting traded, but he did. Yeah, it's a thing that happened. Yeah, and uh, D- I think Darnell Darnell Sweeney Darnell Sweeney was one of the players. I think he uh, he's a he's a, some some interest. Fringe five guy. Yeah, he might have been in the past. Although I think he hit. He was on um, uh, Kylie's top two hundred list entering the season. So, uh, okay. uh, not entirely a member of the, the fringe, um, the fringe population. Anyway, uh, yeah, good stuff, good stuff. Uh, and uh, I guess we'll see you next week. All right, sounds uh, good. Yeah, that has been uh, managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.